Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Tonight we want to spend a few minutes in God's Word together. As I was thinking about Christmas this year, there are certainly some things that are different about Christmas this year. And as I was thinking about that, I started to to ask myself the question, well, what things really make Christmas Christmas? What, What things could I just really not do without and still feel the Christmas spirit? And I realize this might be heresy to some of you, particularly on the younger end of the spectrum, but I concluded pretty quickly that I could do without gifts. Gift giving is fairly low on my love languages scale, and my budget would definitely be better without them. No Christmas cookies would definitely be a blow, but I think Christmas could still be Christmas without them. But as I thought about it for myself, I thought, well, there's one thing that rose to the top that I just don't think Christmas would be Christmas without it, and it's music. No music, no Christmas carols, no Handel's Messiah. It's hard to imagine Christmas as Christmas without music because music so captures the, the, the emotion and the, the expression of the season. And I think it's only something like music that can capture the proper response to God's unexpected rescue plan that started on that first Christmas morning. But I don't think it's just me. I think I actually have biblical support for this. Because if you look at Luke chapters 1 and chapter 2, and you read the Christmas story, you will find at least four times the characters break out into song. Mary, Zechariah, the angels, Simeon. When the story unfolds, they break into singing in the wonder of God's salvation. And tonight I want to spend just a few minutes looking at the first of these songs sung by Mary. Now, as a brief reminder of the story and its context, the angel Gabriel has visited Mary and announced the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. And Mary, as she processes this news, has, has traveled to a small uh, town in the hill country of Judah to see her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And Elizabeth confirms the angel's words and blesses Mary for her faith And Mary, who must have been turning these events over in her mind, pauses then and responds by pouring out her soul and her spirit and meditation on the greatness of God and his salvation. And if you have a Bible, you're certainly welcome to follow along with me. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1, and I'll read verses 46 to 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, 
and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. This is God's word. Our God, how we thank you that you've given us your word. How we thank you for these words that Mary sang in praise to you. Would you use them to stir our hearts in praise to you tonight in Christ's name? Amen. Well, a minute ago, I just said that I would be fine with Christmas without any presents at all. But maybe that's just a reflection of how presents change from childhood to adulthood. I think that when you're a child, Christmas presents tend to be the things you dream of getting but don't dare hope that you could actually get them in the normal course of life. And so you think, well, could I have this? And your parents say, well, wait till Christmas, maybe then. But as an adult, things shift. Now Christmas presents seem to be the things that I really need but don't want to spend my own money on them. And so I get dress shirts or, or a new tool of the one that broke Maybe some of you actually went out and bought your own Christmas present and gave it to your wife to give you tomorrow morning. But even as as an adult, every once in a while, you still get or give a present that's a real success. I think my best gift was surprising Kate five years ago with a membership to Longwood Gardens. You know you hit a success when your wife breaks into tears opening the present. Now, to this day, she denies my success. She says she was just tired and pregnant. But I'm still claiming it as a success. But here in Luke chapter 1, we have more than tears. To the announcement of the original Christmas gift, the arrival of the Messiah, the prophet, the king that God had promised to Adam, that he had promised to Moses, that he had promised to David, When Mary receives the announcement of this Messiah, she bursts into song. The arrival of the one that all Israel had longed for, but certainly wasn't expecting at that moment, was here. As one commentator puts it, Mary's song here is like a song in a musical. The action here, he says, almost stops so that the situation can be savored more deeply. And that's what we want to do with Mary tonight. We want to Let the action of Christmas and the the busyness of our lives around us pause so that we can savor more deeply what God has announced in the arrival of Jesus. If you look at this song, the first line tells us the main point. In response to the news of God's salvation, Mary magnifies the Lord as her spirit rejoices in God her Savior. Now to magnify something is to, to make it bigger, or to make it greater. Maybe you've used a magnifying glass to look at a little bug, or or maybe you magnify the font size in your email so you can read it better. Of course, God doesn't need to be made greater. He already is as great as he could be. But to magnify him is to meditate on his greatness, either because we have experienced his greatness in a new way, or to gaze at it and ponder it so that our understanding of Him and our worship of Him expands. And to magnify the Lord is to declare to others the greatness of God that we have witnessed. And in Mary's song, that is what she's doing. She's magnifying the Lord, and she magnifies Him for two 
reasons. First, she magnifies him for what he has done for her, and then she magnifies him for what he has done for his people. And I want to look at each of those for just a minute tonight. Mary begins in verses 46 to 49 by magnifying the Lord for what he has done for her. She begins by saying her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. And in calling God her Savior, Mary puts the most important point first. The child who would be born from her would be none other than the coming king who would rule on David's throne, meaning that all the promises of the Old Testament would be fulfilled in him. He would save Israel from her enemies. He would cleanse Israel from her sins. He would bring God's kingdom to God's people. And then he would extend the invitation of salvation to every person of every nation so that any who believe in him might be forgiven of their sins and saved. That was what Mary, along with every human being, needed more than anything else. So when God announced the fulfillment of all of his promises through this baby, Mary ponders the greatness of God and magnifies him as her Savior. Well, then Mary goes on to praise God for looking on her humble estate. This is a phrase that captures who Mary was. Mary was a a poor girl in a small town in a corner of a small country with nothing going for her other than that the Lord favored her, which of course is, is all that matters. But she was certainly not the kind of person who would expect God to speak directly to her. And she was certainly not the kind of of girl who would expect that God would use her as the one to bring his own son into the world. But if our radars are up and if we're thinking about God's word, we might notice that Mary is actually borrowing this phrase. She's quoting someone else. She's quoting the words of Hannah, another woman who received a miraculous birth in 1 Samuel 1, who prayed that God would look on the humble estate of his servant. And in using this phrase, Mary is praising the Lord for bringing her, just like Hannah before her, into Israel's history to receive an unexpected baby who would carry out God's work on behalf of his people. And it's being brought into this role to carry out this part of God's plan that causes Mary to rejoice and say that all generations from now on will call her blessed. What a privilege to bear the promised one, Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. What a blessing to think think that God would descend into this world as a baby to be the Savior we all so desperately need, and that she, Mary, would bear this child in her womb and deliver this baby from her own body. It would be ridiculous to think of if it weren't for the words that God's own angel Gabriel had come and told her, that nothing is impossible with God, and this is the one he has been promising for all of history. No wonder, as Mary thinks on this, that her understanding of the greatness of God was expanding and she set out to magnify his name. But even as Mary focuses on God's greatness, she she closes in verse 49 with a very personal note. 
He who is mighty, this great and awesome God of the universe, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Mary's point here is, is not a selfish one. She's not saying, you know, I, I really like what God's doing because he's doing something for me. That's not what she's saying. Her point is rather that it's one thing to observe who God is from afar. It is another thing to experience his greatness, his acts of wonder for yourself. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking of one of my sons who desire is to be a policeman when he grows up. And right now, most of what he knows about policemen are they wear a cool uniform and they do acts of bravery and courage to serve and protect the community. And that's something that sounds good. But I imagine if a policeman personally rescued my son from a robbery or from a dangerous situation. He would go from in general thinking about what a policeman is and what he does to experiencing it himself. And that would give him a whole new appreciation for who they are and what he would want to be. How much more than for Mary, who has read the pages of the Old Testament. She knows her Bible. She knows the attributes of God, that he's powerful and holy and faithful. She knows all this about God. But then this God comes and speaks to her himself and demonstrates his holy might by sending his own son into her womb in order to save her from her sins and to save all who would come to him in faith. And so Mary suddenly can declare, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And I think that's really the question for each one of us tonight. We can know about God. Many of us probably can rehearse plenty of stories from the Bible. Maybe you could make a list of the attributes of God But the question is, have we met the God who has done great things for us? Who has sent his son for us to save us from our sins by his own death and resurrection that he might bring us to be with him forever? If we have met God who has done this for us, if we have put our faith in him, then our understanding of God expands And gives us great reason to magnify the Lord just as it did for Mary. And so Mary magnifies the Lord for what he has done for her. But then she widens her lens. And if you look uh, at verses 50 through 55 in your, your Bibles, you'll see that Mary goes on to review who God is and what he has done for his people. She begins by talking about God's mercy which she says is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now those who fear God, this is a phrase that's often used in Scripture to describe the proper response that's due to the Lord. It's those who stand in awe of him and who worship him and who see his will as decisive for every area of their life. That is those who fear him. And to those who fear him, God has shown his mercy generation after generation. Then Mary goes on and reviews his strength, God's strength, which he works on behalf of his people. Mary says that in his might, he scatters the proud and he brings down the mighty while exalting those of humble estate. Now, typically, the proud and the mighty are those in this world who have their way. 
They are the ones with the strength and the opportunity and the ability to do what they will and to find success, while those of humble estate are typically those who are vulnerable, who are largely at the mercy of the proud and the mighty, who are impacted most by the sufferings of this world. But God says that He uses His might to reverse this order. He brings down the mighty and He exalts the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, but the rich He sends away empty. Now, of course, at at any individual moment in history, we can look around the world. We could look around the world now and, and we could see poor who are indeed hungry. And we can see rich who do seem to be prospering. But that's not the trajectory of the world. The trajectory of the world that God is at work in is that He will pour out abundance on the hungry who know their need. And to those who realize their helplessness and who look to Him, He will fill them with good things. While the arrogant and the self-reliant who feel that life is pretty well under control on their own, thank you, they will be humbled. And this isn't just an abstract promise. This is, in fact, how God has worked all through history. He called Israel, who is the least of all the peoples on the earth, to be His. He came to Israel when they were slaves, the most vulnerable and weak people imaginable, and He rescued them and brought them out with a strong arm, while humbling Egypt in drowning the strongest army in the world in the Red Sea. He defeated the hosts of Midian, who were like the sands on the seashore. And he defeated them with 300 men armed with clay pots. He gave the one hunted prophet, Elijah, victory over the 400 well-supported prophets of Baal. Over and over again, we see God coming to rescue the needy and the weak and humbling the proud. And that's what God does again for Mary. He is now sending his son through a poor, unknown girl in a despised town in Galilee. This is how God works. And 30 years later, Jesus will tell his disciples that this is how things are going to work. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will will be exalted. Why? Why does God work like this? Well, on the one hand, God works like this because he is faithful to his promises. In verse 54 and 55, Mary goes back to the root of all God's goodness to Israel. God promised to Abraham and to his offspring forever to be their God and to take them as his people, and to make them a blessing to all nations. God has done that again and again, and Mary sees this latest and final act of sending Jesus to earth to save all who put their faith in him as yet another step in his faithfulness to his promises. On the other hand, God does this because that is who he is. He is mighty. He is merciful. He is holy. He is faithful. And that is great news. Because if that is how God has always worked for His people, if that is what God is doing again here in sending His Son through Mary, if that is what God promises to do, then we can have good confidence that this is how God will continue to act as He fulfills His promises for His people. As one pastor summed up this song, 
He said, Mary saw in the microcosm of her own life how God had dealt and would deal with the whole world in macrocosm. And she praised the Lord for those reasons. See, this is Mary's song. God, in his might and his mercy, has acted to fulfill his promises to his people and has come to her to send her the Savior she so desperately needs. And then, in reflection on this, Mary composes this first Christmas carol, this first song sung to praise the God who's just announced his greatest gift. Well, as we conclude tonight, before we all fall asleep, as we look towards Christmas morning, how should we respond? Well, let me just suggest two ways that we might imitate Mary. First, this song means finding hope and humility. Now, some of you know your need desperately. Maybe you're sick or facing the limitations of aging. Maybe you're hurting from tension and conflict in relationships and you, you don't know how these conflicts could possibly be healed. Maybe you feel the weight of pain and suffering that has hung on over you for weeks or years. Maybe you're discouraged emotionally or spiritually and feel alone. Or maybe, though hard to admit, you know your sin and you know your pride and you know your selfishness and you know that the ways that you have acted have been both a rejection of God and they have led to pain and hurt for yourself and for others. That is where we all are on our own. And if you find yourselves in these situations, your hope is not to try to balance out your failings with enough good things. It's not to respond with a stiff upper lip and show the world you can make it through this difficulty. It's, it's not to let God and the world know what you think of Him for not giving you what you deserve. No, your hope is found in humility. In the humility of confession of your sin and repentance, and the humility of reaching out your hand and looking to God as the only one who can meet your need, of looking to Him who sent His Son to be your Savior. This takes a lot of humility. There's the famous Christian theologian from the 5th century, St. Augustine, who said, for those who would learn the ways of God, humility is the first thing, and humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. I think this is the first way we can imitate Mary's song. But second, it means singing God's praise with joyful thanksgiving. See, when Mary first heard what God was about to do, this song was her response. And it's not a carefully curated response like uh, we might do to our photo on Instagram. It's not something polished up and prepared to look good. No, this song is what naturally flows from her heart when she sees the goodness of God. This praise, this joy, this gratitude is the natural response of a heart in awe of God's goodness and salvation. This Christmas season, my family read a children's book we read every so often called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. Some of you have probably read this. In the story, the Herdman children are the terrors of the town. They've never heard the Christmas story and they don't care about the Christmas story. 
They don't care about Christmas pageants either, but they heard that the local church offers donuts and cake. And so they crash Sunday school and take all the main parts in the Christmas pageant. The church is a little bit horrified at first, but over the course of the pageant, the Herdman children begin to learn the story of Christmas. And as they do, they're horrified by the way the church seems rather unmoved by the familiar story. The Herdman children viscerally react with anger at Herod when Herod wants to kill baby Jesus. And they can't understand why everyone in church isn't up in arms and ready to take up weapons to defend baby Jesus. And they scoff at the plastic containers representing frankincense as the gift that they would give to the king. So on the night of the pageant, the middle school Herdman boys ditch their props And they lug a huge ham down the center aisle. That, they feel, is a real gift in honor of a king. That's a gift, they say, that cuts through all of this tradition of just doing things the way they're done to really express joy and awe at the birth of the Savior. And it was, the church agrees, the best Christmas pageant ever. It cut through the tradition, it cut through the normal ways of doing things, to a real heart that responded with joy and amazement at what God had done in sending Jesus, who would save his people from his sins on that first Christmas night. Now, I would not suggest piling hams in the offering basket tonight. I don't know what we would do with them. But if we know who this baby is and what he's come to do, we cannot help but leave tonight in awed joy and gratitude at our King and our Savior. See, a baby in a manger, it's not just a a sweet, peaceful story. It's not just part of the Christmas season. This is the Son of God who has reached into our world and into our lives and has gone to great lengths to save us from our own sinfulness and foolishness and selfishness. And if we understand the God of Christmas and the work that He has sent His Son to do, then songs of joyful praise and thanksgiving will be the natural response of our hearts as we magnify such a mighty God who has done great things for us. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for Christmas. We thank you that it comes around every year. But Father, keep this season from being traditional or the sentimental season of peace on earth. May it be a time when we genuinely remember that we celebrate Jesus, the fulfillment of all of your prophecies, the fulfillment of your whole plan of redemption, the one who invites us to respond in faith, that we might have salvation and pour out our hearts in joy and thanksgiving tonight and tomorrow and every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.